Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. This is Sarah Nuttall for the Wiser podcast. In this episode, Simon van Skolkwe considers some of the emerging contours of our current nuclear age. He does so by revisiting earlier ideologies of containment during America's McCarthy era, as well as reading for the specters of nuclearity in mid-20th century U.S. poetry. From there, he thinks forwards into ongoing and emergent processes of nuclear logic in today's world, drawing on theoretical resources, computer simulations of nuclear war should it explode across southern Africa, and analyses of South Africa's recent and current nuclear itineraries, paradoxes, paranoias, and secrets. We have emerged into a new nuclear age. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has peeled back yet another layer from the steadily eroding surfaces of liberal democracy and its neoliberal economic counterpart. We are witnessing the return of a long-latent but recently reawakened Cold War atavism, characterized by political chauvinism and machismo, and atomic anxiety and paranoia on a global scale. Consider, for example, Vladimir Putin's threatening declaration that whoever tries to interfere with us should know that Russia's response will be immediate and will lead you to such consequences as you have never experienced in your history. Putin's nuclear saber-rattling has prompted the USA to resuscitate its Cold War-era policy of political and cultural containment. Initiated by George F. Kennan's 1947 long telegram, containment was a type of soft-pedal psycho-warfare, the dual purpose of which amounted to the securitization of the American home against the supposedly threatening encroachment of communism across the globe. Containment also set the groundwork for more aggressive policies initiated by the National Security Council following the successful detonation of the Soviet's first atomic bomb in 1949. In this way, the seductively soft power of containment ideology accompanied the more militaristic excesses of Cold War conflict. The proliferation of nuclear arms, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis that set the doomsday clock at seven minutes to midnight. The Cold War conflict remained cold precisely because the proliferation of thermonuclear arms invited the spectre of mutually assured destruction. More bombs with bigger nuclear yields paradoxically kept the madness of global nuclear holocaust at bay. Now, however, technological advances in nuclear ordnance have led to the creation and proliferation of low-yield nuclear weaponry capable of downscaling the nuclear's destructive power for strategic, tactical, or targeted operational purpose. By delimiting the otherwise globally apocalyptic prospect of nuclear warfare, these small-scale nuclear weapons have the paradoxical effect of increasing the likelihood of global nuclear disaster. As one simulation has shown, should Moscow fire a nuclear warning shot, and should NATO respond in kind, the ensuing war would yield more than 90 million casualties in its first few hours. It's possible to test such scenarios from the comfort of your own home by accessing Alex Wellerstein's Nuke Map, a website designed to simulate the effects of nuclear strikes anywhere on Earth. Out of 
a kind of obscene curiosity, I set the location for Braunfontein, Johannesburg, where WISER, the research centre hosting this particular podcast, is located. A drop-down menu labelled Enter a Yield in Kilotons allows me to scroll through a selection of nuclear weapons. Davy Crockett is the smallest option, and has a yield of only 20 tonnes. Fat Man, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, had a yield of 20 kilotons, and B-83, currently the largest nuclear weapon in the US arsenal, weighs in at 1.2 megatons. Feeling reckless, however, I select the Saar Bomber, a 100 megaton monster that remains the largest nuclear weapon ever designed. Then, after selecting surface detonation rather than airburst from basic options, and casualties and radioactive fallout from other options, I click a red button labelled Detonate. A numerical counter for estimated casualties scrolls rapidly beyond the 3 million mark. There are up to 2.5 million estimated injuries. My on-screen map blooms with an overlay of colourful concentric circles. The bright green of Ground Zero, reaching all the way to Santon, is progressively enveloped by orange, yellow, red, blue, and again orange rings. The outermost ring skirts the edges of place names like Garankua in the north, Carltonville in the west, Sasselberg in the south, and Delmas to the east. Along with Johannesburg, Vereniging, Tembisa, Krugersdorp, and Pretoria all fall well within blast range, and, I suspect, are utterly destroyed. The northeast is heavily affected by a swath of radioactive fallout carried by the wind, the fallout is depicted by a flame-like series of red, orange, and yellow ovals. Scrolling out, I follow the direction of the flare as it burns its way through a litany of local names. Vitbank, Polokwane, Mbombela, Palaborwa, the Kruger National Park, and across the border, skirting the south of Zimbabwe and sweeping across into Mozambique's Limpopo National Park, beyond Bera, spilling into the Mozambican Channel, before fading into gentle saffron somewhere around a place called Nampula. How, I wonder, do these simulated details of nuclear futures alter our understanding of the world's nuclear history? The immediate prospect of nuclear annihilation on a global scale and the attempt to contain it exerted immense and productive pressure upon mid-20th century American poetry. Intriguingly, and perhaps in anticipation of Jacques Derrida's controversial suggestion that the nuclear age is constructed by the fable on the basis of an event that has never happened except in fantasy, these poems reveal as much about the nuclear spectral entanglement with Cold War institutions and their political and psychic symptoms. In the guise of confession, for example, mid-20th century American poetry foregrounds the subjective, private inwardness and domestic insularity of a subject whose potentially threatening psychosexual and psychopolitical desires are safely contained by marriage and confined within the white picket fences of the nuclear family's suburban desires. Yet the fact that these poems also repeatedly explore the conspiratorial and paranoid reaches of psychological and marital breakdown indicates the porosity and ruptures of containment's domesticating and insulating ideals. More suggestively, intimate confessions of private or personal detail beg us to reflect on the relationship between personal poetic candor and the more public confessions presented or extracted from people like Alge Hiss, 
and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, tried for allegedly conspiring with the Soviet enemy. The words that press out of the many-hold earpiece in Plath's poem, words heard by accident over the telephone, set the room a hiss with leaked sound, betraying containment's conspiratorial and paranoid underbelly. Such leaks attest to the secretive forms of surveillance carried out under the sign of McCarthyism, designed to identify sexually deviant and indeed politically devious subjects concealed within the American home. Seen through the lens of McCarthyism's red and pink scares, the fairy decorator who contemplates marriage as a pathway to financial security in Robert Lowell's celebrated confessional poem Skunk Hour becomes a homoerotic double agent invested with threateningly subversive potential. And John Berryman's suspicion of an unfriendly figure named Peter, who gives the speaker sideways looks in Dream Song 55, hints at the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy that Richard Hofstadter identified as a central feature of the paranoid style of American politics. These poems betray the impress of a spectral nuclear threat that, rerouted through state-sanctioned policies of containment, return as pathologized Cold War anxieties. The Cold War's hermeneutics of conspiracy, paranoia and suspicion also illuminates the ways in which confessional poetry's presentation of seemingly innocuous poetic images is irradiated with nuclear significance. Plath's innocuous mushrooms, for example, are uncannily mycelial counterparts to the nuclear mushroom clouds waiting to inherit the earth. Berryman's radioactive pal, who has the night sweats and the day sweats, adds the pulpy patina of post-war science fiction and comic book fantasy to everyday atomic anxieties. A nuclear man decayed by Cold War neuroses. And Lowell casts a jaundiced eye across a commercial photograph that shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mosla safe, anticipating the twinned booms of the nuclear age's planet-smashing atomic and media technologies that, together, threaten to blow up the world while exploiting images of atrocity for profit. Intriguingly, these poems also set the nuclear in suggestive relation to America's similarly apocalyptic, similarly spectral racial history. Plath's mushrooms emerge overnight and discreetly, but they also emerge whitely, linking them to the nuclear families popping up across the lawnscapes of suburban America and setting them in suggestively conformist counterpoint to the furtive operations of those black, homosexual and foreign bodies rendered suspicious and threatening under the paranoid and conspiratorial sign of McCarthyism. Or consider how Berryman's risky deployment of the racist conventions of the minstrel show as the structural and formal anchor for his theme songs undergirds his fantastic portrayal of an American subject irradiated by both nuclear and racial toxicity. Lowell's For the Union Dead, more explicitly, demonstrates how the post-war American financial boom leads to projects of urban renewal that threaten America's monumental racial memory with extinction. At the same time, Lowell sets contemporary eruptions of racial dissent associated with the civil rights movement in proleptic relation to global nuclear catastrophe. There are no statues for the last war here, he writes, erasing the significance of attempts to memorialize America's racial history while nihilistically undermining contemporary efforts to politicize racial struggle by invoking a nuclear future. As a symptom of containment, 
Lowell's poem displays how the invocation of a nuclear future amounts to a type of pre-mediation premised upon the prediction and the control of the future in order to securitize and immunize the present against as yet unrealized and perhaps even unimaginable future risks. What futures will the U US's recently reanimated corpse of containment invoke now, I wonder? And how will the spectral impress of these futures securitize and control present political possibilities? Nuclear technology leads us to question Paul Virilio's well-known maxim, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. Because if every technology carries its own negativity, which is invented at the same time as technical progress, it is difficult to see the nuclear as anything other than negative, difficult to see how it may be regarded as technically or technologically progressive at all. Prior to the 1996 Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, more than 2,000 nuclear bombs were detonated in the years following the Trinity Test, in, um, which took place at the Jornada del Muerto, the Dead Man's Route, in New Mexico in 1945. These detonations distributed radioactive carbon-14 throughout the planetary biosphere, to the point where, to this day, we all carry trace amounts of the substance in our body tissue, a techno-genetic imprint, signature, or timestamp marking us as children of the atom. Yet this phenomenon, known as the carbon-14 bomb pulse, has also facilitated our ability to date and study dead tissue, to help us understand the way water moves and to track global warming. In this way, the nuclear arguably signals neither negativity nor progress, but rather the bewildering entanglement of our notions of temporal and technological progression. Peter Sloterdijk offers a clear-sighted account of the future of such entangled and paradoxical technological effects when he suggests that techno-political attempts to secure and control nuclear atmo-terrorism has given rise to technologies designed to harness the weather for the simultaneous purpose of cloud seeding, ozone repair, and ionospheric battlefield dominance. America, I recently learned, implemented cloud seeding technology during the Vietnam War. Designated Operation Popeye, this manipulation of weather for warfare was designed to extend the monsoon season over specific areas of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the hope that road surfaces would be softened enough to produce landslides that would literally flood out the invisible communist enemy. As an example of what Robert Marzek calls environmentality, the securitization of atmospheric, geological and biospheric zones demanded by Operation Popeye indicates the entanglement of containment's nuclear principles with the colonization and indeed the militarization of nature since the putative end of the Cold War in 1989. Yet this very phrase, the end of the Cold War, occludes the ongoing processes of Cold War logic in what Soren Radukuku calls Cold War 2.0. The development of KGB disinformation tactics into the cybernetic realms of the internet. Russia's electoral interference in recent democratically held elections in the USA is one example of Cold War 2.0's attempt to seduce us into believing a grand narrative of history in which mass media manipulation takes center stage. At the same time, this disguises the possibility that what is actually being manipulated through active measures is the mass media system of democratic societies itself. The result is an erosion of trust in the institutional authority and reliability that leads not only to Trumpist declarations about fake news, 
but also to the proliferation of paranoid conspiracy theories such as QAnon, which facilitated the rise of the alt-right and spurred the recent invasion of the US capital. In South Africa, the new containment culture of environmentality and the paranoid style of Cold War 2.0 seem to have been embodied by our former president, Jacob Zuma. It is worth remembering that Zuma's paranoid suspicion that he had been poisoned developed soon after US President Barack Obama encouraged him to surrender South Africa's last remaining reserves of enriched uranium, an amount of roughly 220 kilograms. Zuma traveled to Russia in search of medical treatment and returned peddling a newly minted nuclear deal that, though ultimately abortive, threatened to bankrupt an already bankrupted country. What leaks into the vacuum left behind by this dead-in-the-water nuclear deal? At present, Turkish car power ships are lining up along the vanishing point of South Africa's coastlines, waiting to fill the nuclear void of the national power supplier, ESCOM. Meanwhile, nearly a quarter tonne of enriched uranium ingots lie stashed in a reportedly impenetrable safe somewhere inside Pilindaba East, also known as Valindaba or Y-Plant, a uranium enrichment facility located near the Hartebiespoort Dam, approximately 33 kilometers from Pretoria. Loosely translated, and in ways that shed further light on the paranoia and conspiratorial political and economic imperatives prompted by nuclear secrecy, it is sadly telling that Pilindaba means end of story, and Valindaba, about this, we do not speak at all.